Hey, what's up, Resonate? How are you? It's so good to be here this morning. You know, I um, want to welcome those of you who are online and also welcome our Haywood campus to being together this morning. Um, I know there's some of you this morning who you came to know Jesus during our Explore God series, and we just want to say welcome. We are glad you're here. Can we say thank you to the people who are here? Who, Yeah, I just want to encourage you. Keep coming back every week after week. Like, you might think that we know a lot about Jesus, and so that's why we're here. We don't. We come back because we have more to learn every week, and we just want to keep on growing in the knowledge and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So if you are a new believer, we're going to talk about a subject this morning that has the ability to disrupt, to derail, and even to destroy you, and that subject is money. Now, two, or last week, our pastor, Pastor Ryan, got up and started sharing vision about uh, Resonate and where we're going. And I love the fact that we're starting Resonate Oakland in uh, 2024, January. You guys excited about that? Yeah, especially those of you who are from Oakland area, you're going to have a new campus to attend. I'm stoked about that. Um, you heard him share about Vallejo, Resonate Vallejo, and our prayers for that work. Yeah. And then also other parts of the Bay, like Dublin, the Tri-Valley area, and then down into San Jose, and other places that we want to plant, even not just resonate campuses, but autonomous campuses. And I love that the vision is not just, hey, let's go plant a church, but the vision is actually backed up with Resonate Leadership Institute, which is our school of ministry. And so if you want to be a part of a core team or you would even like to be a campus pastor or a pastor at one of those churches, that's your next step. So you can be a part of leading that work. And if you feel like God is calling you to do that, there is actually a booth, at least at the Fremont campus, outside on the way out. There's one of the Hayward campus too, where you can sign up for that and put it in the chat and online. Just tell us. I would love to be a part of what God is calling us to do. But can I tell you, that work takes money, doesn't it? It takes money to plant a campus. It takes money to raise up pastors, to raise up core teams to go out. And our pastor challenged us last week. He said, don't just come to church, but be the church. And part of that is funding the vision. And so we're talking about money this morning. Hmm, can I tell you, I love talking about money. I don't mind it one bit. I grew up in a church that talked about money in such a healthy way, gave me such a great picture of how we could use money for God's glory and for our own joy and even for our own satisfaction. Felt like I grew up in a church that taught me how to tithe and how to have a relationship with money that kept me from falling into the pit of despair when I didn't have any, but kept my hope in the Lord. And I just love, I love the fact that God's given me a joy in talking about money, not being afraid of it at all. In fact, there was, my parents, when, I, when we were growing up, we never had a lot of money, but my parents always talked about giving and always talked about tithing and being generous. And I saw it in their own lives where even though we didn't have a lot, my, my parents had four teenage boys at one time in their house. Like, do you know how much teenage boys eat? Like, and I'm... I'm amazed at just the faith of my mom to provide for us. God, God to provide for us. In fact, there was one time when I was probably uh, belly aching about the smallness of my paycheck, and my, my mom said to me, and this line has stuck with me my entire life. She said, oh, Jim, uh, your paycheck is only one place that God provides for you. 
And what is she doing? She's speaking in to my life like this, this beauty of the love of God. And in fact, I'm at the point now um, where I'm afraid not to be generous with my money. And, and, and you might say, well, is that because of guilt or shame? Is this because you're a pastor and you should be doing the shoulds in Christian life? And honestly, I'm really against the shoulds at this point. I love the grace of God. And I'm afraid not to give because I'm afraid that I won't have more stories to tell about God's goodness. Because every time I've given faithfully, even when we haven't had enough, God's provided. And then I get to go tell the world, look at what God has done. Look at, I get to tell my kids, look at what God's done. I get to tell my wife, I get to tell my own heart, look at who God is. Look what he has done. And so I, I absolutely love talking about money. Some of you, you're like, all right, we're like two minutes into this sermon, I'm out. I'm checked out. Um, because you didn't have the privilege of growing up in a good environment. You didn't have the privilege of maybe having a godly mom and dad that, that spoke truth into your life. Um, and you, you might have come from a place of really big hurt. And it might have been inside the church where you saw a, a pastor or a leader who is really greedy with money. Or maybe just an organization that claimed to be Christian or a boss that claimed to be Christian and you saw the squandering of wealth. And so your, your heart is like, I don't, I don't want to talk about this at all. It's been, a, it's been a, something that has taken away joy for you. And, and, and I, I just want to tell you, the God we know is not short on cash. Like there is no reason for any church leader ever to be greedy unless they're not trusting in our Father. But those lessons on churches that don't do the grace and the goodness of God uh, service, um, those are lessons for us to go, we want to be good stewards. And I love the fact that we work in a church, that we're a part of a church, that we are being the church in a church that actually has all of our finances regularly checked by a national CPA firm. And if you want to go online on our website and just check out the reviewed financials, like, I love the fact that we're not afraid. Come look at this, because we want, to, we want you to know that we're trying to be above board in everything that we're doing, and we're trying to trust God, and that we're good stewards here of, of what God is, is doing here. Now, can I tell you this morning that you are some of the most generous people on earth? Americans are some of the most generous people anywhere. You know how I know this? The average American spends 101% of their income. You're really generous. That's, man, that's, that's so awesome. How about this one? The average American household has eight credit cards with an average debt of $15,000. You're generous. Super generous. How about this one? Americans are so generous that 30% of adults have zero savings and 50% of us live paycheck to paycheck. That's pretty generous. Like just... As soon as it comes in, I'm giving it out. I'm giving it out. We're all generous to something. Maybe Amazon. Maybe Macy's. Maybe Starbucks. Maybe Disney. Maybe the Fireman's Fund. Maybe NPR. Maybe KQED. How many of you have been generous to Chick-fil-A this week? See, we're all generous to something. But here's the truth from God's word. The Bible speaks about money not because God cares about money, but because he cares about us. And he loves us like crazy. And what the Bible warns us 
of is that what we often do with our money actually puts us into greater peril. And the Bible actually calls the love of money a trap, a snare, when really it should lead to great joy in our lives. So we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy this morning. So will you turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And 1 Timothy is a book that's written by a guy named Paul. He was a, a man who was called to plant churches. Some of the first churches that ever existed were planted by Paul. And he planted this church, and then he gave it over to a young pastor named Timothy. And he is writing this book to tell Timothy how to pastor this church. And one of the things that you can notice in this book is that Paul loves the church like crazy. He wants them to live in joy and freedom. And so he writes this whole book just giving warnings about things that he doesn't want them to get distracted, derailed, or destroyed by. One of those things might be false teaching, or deviant leaders, or having a false gospel, or improper worship or legalism, trying to make yourself right by obeying rules or forgetting the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But do you know what? The lengthiest warning in this book is actually about money. So there's only six chapters in the, in the book of 1 Timothy and almost an entire chapter, almost the entirety of chapter six is devoted to money. And so out of all the things that the Holy Spirit could have warned us of, this is important. And when Paul is teaching Timothy, he's not trying to manipulate the church. He's not trying to grow the church. He's not trying to get Timothy to learn as a preacher how to manipulate people for the building fund or some sort of indulgences or something like that. He's saying, no, I love these people like crazy. God loves these people like crazy. And you need to teach them to live in freedom and joy. That's the heart behind this. That's why I love talking about money. Because it's for your joy, not for your downfall. And the good news is Jesus says this, I've come that you might have life and have it, what church? Abundantly. Amen. And that's what, he, that's what he's doing here. All the warnings and all the teachings that we see in the Bible on money are there for our joy. So this week, and ne- this week, um, next week, we're going to look at money. And this week, my job is to talk about how the love of money can be a trap and how to be freed from that. Um, And then next week, Pastor Ryan is going to talk about finding joy in using money well, using money for eternity. I'm I'm so thankful that we're part of a church that doesn't avoid this. Aren't you? Like, let's let's dive in. I want to know what God's goodness is for us, don't you? So why don't we stand together, and we're going to read chapter 6 and answer two questions. Why is the love of money a trap? And how can we be freed from or avoid the trap of the love of money? So join me, and we're going to start in verse 3 of chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He is an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant... Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we were brought into this world with nothing, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. And as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good work, to be rich in good work, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is God's word for this morning. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. So we want to answer our first question here is, why is the love of money a trap? And this is really verses 3 through 10. When Paul refers to the snare here, the trap, he is using a specific Greek word. And it's, it's a Greek word that refers to a trap that is a noose for a bird. And so you can see like a little bird that comes out and is just kind of like minding its own business, working, you know, just to sustain itself. It's just picking up these crumbs, these seeds, and it's just walking around and there's a noose there that it doesn't notice and it walks through it, continues to pick up seeds and that noose gets tighter and tighter until it figures out it's been trapped and then it tries to get out of that trap and begins to strangle itself until it dies and becomes someone else's meal. That's the... That's the word that he's using here. And so he's telling us that the love of money is a similar trap, that we are just trying to survive. We're just trying to get by, and unknowingly, as we are trying to get our needs met, we're sticking our head into a trap, and then as we go along our merry way, it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter until we realize we are caught, and then it gets worse and worse and worse until we become someone else's meal. That's the, that's the picture that he's giving us here. And the distinction that he gives us in verse 10 is really important because he says it's not money that is the problem. It is the love of money or the desire to be rich. And the distinction makes it clear that God doesn't call us to a life of poverty. In fact, in verse 17, he says, Godly richly provides everything for us to enjoy. So he's not calling us to a life of poverty. He's calling us to have an appropriate relationship with money for our joy. And what Paul is helping us to realize is this, is that you don't have to have money for money to ruin your life. Just a desire for money alone can ruin your life. Did you hear that? 
You don't have to have money for it to ruin your life. Just a desire to have it will ruin your life. So why then is the love of money a trap? Well, if you desire to be rich, two things are going to happen. First, in our love for money, you will never think you have enough. You'll never think you have enough. In fact, Ecclesiastes 5.10 says it this way, that those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. This is written by Solomon, who is one of the wealthiest individuals ever to exist, maybe to ever have existed. Now, a few um, weeks ago, Pastor Ryan was preaching, and he shared with us this story about when he was in college and he was broke, he used to eat the cheap tacos from Taco Bell. Remember this? And he was telling us, you know, they were the 29-cent tacos, and he always bought four of them. And then when he started to get a paycheck, he realized for 10 cents more, he could have the deluxe taco from Taco Bell. And for 10 cents more, they put a little thing of sour cream across the top. But man, how that changes your world, doesn't it? And what he confessed was every time that he has made more money, something that he used to consider a luxury actually turned into a need. That's the trap of the love of money. And case in point is this. If I asked you today, are you rich, what would you say? I would say probably 100% of us would say, no, I'm not rich. Why? Because you are comparing yourself and the situation you are in to somebody else's luxuries. And yet, as we look around the world... Aren't we probably the most, the wealthiest people in all history? It's crazy. You know, we live in Alameda County. It's the 14th largest economy in the world. The wealth here is crazy. But the German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, he says it this way. Wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. That's the love of money. The trap is that somehow thinking money will fulfill you when in reality you will never arrive. And some of you might have heard of, of this wealthy guy. His name was John D. Rockefeller. And he was, a, he was an oil tycoon around the 1900s. And they said that his wealth was 1% of the whole U.S. economy. This guy was probably one of the wealthiest Americans that ever lived. And just to put this in perspective for you, if you took Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and you added their wealth together today, they would look like paupers in comparison to John D. Rockefeller. Crazy amount of wealth. And there's this famous story where John D. Rockefeller is asked by a reporter, John, how much money do you need? And his famous response is this, just a little bit more. Trap. You're trapped. The second reason the love of money is a trap is because in our love for money, we will ignore or destroy the very good God has right in front of us. See, if you love money and the pursuit of money, it will take precedence over your values and your relationship and your spiritual well-being. You'll start to reprioritize your life into making money the ultimate goal rather than the loved ones and the people that you care that are right close to you or even yourself. And think about this. Think of how many of you are like, I need a rest. I need a break. I'm exhausted all the time. But you can't get off that treadmill because you've got the love of money 
the need for money. Verse 9 and 10 say it this way, many, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's more of a corporate experience. Or verse 10, many have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you, do you know what that means? He, Paul's talking about a, a bow and arrow, an archer, and he's, thinking about, he's talking about taking one of the arrows and just impaling yourself with it. It's a self-inflicted wound. That's what the love of money is. And what God is saying is if money is your goal, your priorities will change. Priorities that are not good for society, priorities that are not good for your family, for you, for your kids, for your marriage. And it's a trap because it seems, it, it seems so good at first. I'm just trying to do what's best for my family. But in the long haul, it just asks for more and more until everything around you is destroyed. You know, back in the uh, 1980s, if some of you were alive back then, um, there was this guy named Jack Welch, and he was the uh, CEO, the chairman of GE, General Electric's massive global firm. And he was one of the first uh, corporate executives to put profit first. And he began to reprioritize all of GE to making money for the shareholders. And so he began to gut that company. And the way that he shut down some of the research and development, and he began to reprioritize that company. And GE today is a fraction of what it used to be in, in the 1980s. because of the, And the employees that came from there are not happy people because of the profits put first. But one of the, mentor, one of the mentees that came out of uh, Jack Welch was the guy that took over Boeing. And this brings us to today, because do you remember when Boeing made the 737 MAX? And as all the stories came out about the making of the 737 MAX and the fact that two crashes had happened, that what had they done? They had put the shareholder profit, they had gutted the company of safety measures, and all of a sudden, over 400 people lost their lives. And Boeing, on the other end of this, paid out almost $3 billion because they had a trap of the love of money. Do you see how this works? Maybe a, an example that might be closer to home for all of us is the opening of a family will. You know, a grandparent dies, a, a parent dies, somebody passes away, and so you all walk into the... To, to the attorney's office, you're like, yeah, this is going to be a great day. We're going to celebrate granddad's life. We're going to celebrate my dad's life. We're going to celebrate. And you all walk in there going, I'll see you at Thanksgiving next week. This is going to be amazing. And then as the attorney begins to read the will, you're like, what is going on? This is not what dad said. This is not what grandpa said. This is, and all of a sudden you begin to look at the people around you and like, they're getting more than I am. And... All of a sudden, no one's welcome at Thanksgiving anymore. In fact, we might not even see you at Christmas. And maybe I'll not see you at Christmas for the next 10 years. Why? Because the love of money is a trap. And it has ensnared you. You walked in there thinking everything was going to be fine, but you did not know that you had already stuck your head in that noose. And it was going to destroy, derail, disrupt that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot 
You cannot. This, he doesn't give any wiggle room here. You cannot serve both God and money. See, the love of money is a trap, and, and, and at first it looks like it can solve all your problems. And can we just be clear biblically? The Bible is clear on this. It says money can solve a lot of problems. But once you put your hope in it, once you begin to think that money is the thing that satisfies instead of God, you will do anything to get it and thus creating more problems, self-inflicted wounds, pangs. So knowing then that it is a trap, um, knowing then that the love of money, not just money itself, but the love of money is a trap, um, how can we be freed from? This is our second question. How can we be freed from or avoid the trap? Now, can I just remind you that Paul's intent here is to encourage. It's to help us. Um, God loves you. You know that? He's for you. And so this message is not condemning at all. It's, he's working to free you from the trap and to bring you joy. And Paul's help is directed at two groups of people. The first are those who desire to be rich, and that's verses 11 through 16. But then there's a second group of people, those who are already rich, and he talks to them specifically in verses 17 through 19. So the, the first one is this, is how can those who desire, this is the first group, how can those who desire to be rich be freed from the trap of the love of money? Now, I love Paul's writing. He's really consistent in doing this. Uh, he starts verse 11 with this word. But as for you, O man of God, but as for you. Now, there's, a, there's this normal way that Paul writes where he begins to talk about the problem that, that they are having. And then he says, but as for you, you need to do something different. This is what we call repentance in the Christian life. Right? I was walking this way. God enlightened me. He opened my eyes to what I was doing. And then I focus on something else. But you, oh man of God, turn in repentance. And, and here's what Paul is saying to us is you cannot just say to your soul, stop loving money. It will never work. Think of your New Year's resolutions from prior this year, where you said, this is what I'm going to do this year. How many of that worked? Because you can't look at the problem and say, I'm going to stop doing this. The, the reality is the only way to change our lives is to be transformed, is to focus on something else. And so biblically, you see this pattern. Stop focusing on this. Repent. Turn 180 and head towards the other thing. Pursue something else. Well, what does he tell us to pursue? Verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, to most of us in this room, this is going to be a list of to-dos. This is what you should do. You should pursue righteousness. You should pursue being a better person. You should pursue godliness. You should pursue faith and being faithful you should be more loving to people around you. You should be more steadfast in your faith. Not give up. You should have more tenacity. You should be more gentle in the way that you work with other people. Now, 
I am not saying that is not true. I think that is one explanation of this text, and that is true. I wish we would be more righteous, more godly, more steadfast, more loving, more faithful. Don't you? But what if we flip this on its head? And we said, actually, what Paul is doing is telling us to focus on what God provides. So if he says, pursue righteousness, what if he's saying, pursue the righteousness that God has for you? Do you not realize that it's not because of what you've done that makes you right before God, but it's because of what Jesus has done that makes us right before God? You know, you cannot improve Jesus' righteousness for you one bit. Even though you're trying, and I'm trying every day, you can't. God looks at you and he says, I love you. I love you. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have his righteousness upon you. And the debt is settled. And God says, I love you like crazy. And what is he saying? He's saying the difference is this, that when you understand the righteousness of God is within you, your heart gets filled. It's not empty anymore. But it's not just the righteousness, godliness. Do you not know that he's provided a godliness for you? Like you can't be more godly than you are before God. He's already done this work within you. And when he talks about faithfulness, is he talking about our faithfulness or is he talking about pursuing God's faithfulness towards us? You know, in the Old Testament, um, when God did something, whether it was crossing the Red Sea, whether it was providing water in the middle of the desert, he instructed them, put up an altar, put a pile of rocks up so that you can tell your future generations, your kids, hey, kids, when we were here and we were walking through here, we were thirsty, there was no hope. Like God, we didn't think God would provide and he provided. We cried out to him and he provided for us and they're celebrating the faithfulness of God. How about the love of God? You know, I love being a part of a church where we're taking communion on a weekly basis because what are we doing? We're taking the bread and the juice, and it's a reminder to us of what? That Jesus, he laid down his life for us. He says, I love you so much that I'm willing to die for you, that he poured out his blood for us. You know what he's saying? I love you. I love you. That's what he's saying. How about that's what we focus on? And then how about we focus on the steadfastness of God towards us? Because, you know, the steadfastness of God, it's, how many, how many of you have ever tried to walk away from God? I mean, I think I've done it 100,000 times. And yet he just draws me back over and over again. He surrounds me with people that won't let me go. He gives me a church that calls and says, hey, where are you at? He gives me kids and a wife and friends who say, are you still seeking after Jesus? Don't be discouraged. Don't be downcast. And to keep bringing me back and God's steadfastness. And how about the gentleness of God towards you? Have you felt it? You know, when you're broken and when you're sinning, he doesn't come in and say, let's get this worked out. He says, it's my kindness that leads you to repentance. I love the story of the woman who is caught in adultery. Because Jesus doesn't come in and say, you know what you're doing is wrong. You should repent. You should stop doing that. He comes in and says, I love you. Who are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And what's he doing? He's filling her heart with the fullness of the love of God so she's not empty, so she will stop sinning. Do you see? It's beautiful. And I realize I'm that adulterous woman. 
That's me as I run away from God. And yet he says, do you not know I love you? And see, this is the point of the text, I think, is that he's saying when you know the righteousness of God, when you know the godliness that he's provided for you, when you know his faithfulness and his love, when you know his steadfastness and his gentleness towards you, what? Your heart's not empty anymore. You don't have to go out and try and find the things that money can buy to try and fill the void because there's no void because your heart is full. And maybe that's what he means when he says in the next word, verse, fight the good fight of faith. Coming back daily, coming back weekly to a reminder that God has been this good to us, that he loves you this much. And what you, what you got, they can't steal it because it comes from God alone. But the idea doesn't just stop here. The idea of pursuit doesn't stop here because he also encourages them. And I don't, I don't have time to go into this, but in verses 12 through 16, he tells them to live in light of eternity. Like just to know this short life is nothing in comparison and to keep your head up and live life. In fact, if you're an English major, I'm sure this chapter just drives you bonkers because Paul is the ultimate in just run-on sentences. But I love it because he starts confessing and talking about the eternal life that we have. And he's like, this is guaranteed by Jesus. And this is who he is. And this is what he's done. And this is and all glory and praise and honor to be him forever. Amen. Because he's so excited about the goodness of God. See, that's living in light of eternity. And how can we be free from the snare or the trap of the love of money? Man, do you, do you pursue what God has done for you? Do you live in light of that? Do you live in light of eternity? But this is not the only group, those who desire to be rich, but there's also those who are already rich. And how can those who are already rich be freed from the trap of the love of money? And Paul, Paul gives us two instructions from verse 17 through 19. He says, to those who are already rich, and, and mind you, I think he would say to every single person in this room, most likely, you're already rich. He would say, remember the uncertainty of riches. And, you know, back in the, the beginning of this book, in the beginning of the chapter, uh, Paul quotes Job. He says this in verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. Naked you came, naked will you leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job was this incredible example to us because he had been made wealthy by God, but in one night, God took all of his wealth away. And yet we see the example of God. If Job had not put his hope in his riches. He had put his hope in God. And so he's like, man, Whatever God wants to do here, but he realizes the uncertainty of riches. Do you not know that your wealth can be gone in one moment? Some of you remember Enron, where so many have put their retirement in this company that was trapped by the love of money, and yet it all evaporated. And there are thousands of stories of pyramid schemes that just evaporate wealth. And he's saying, don't put your, help, your hope in your treasure. It can, 
It can disappear very quickly. But then the second instruction he gives us is this, is be generous. Be generous. Do you know how to teach your heart not to rely on riches? Give the riches away. Give them away. You know, one of the, the things, when, when I was younger in business, um, young men and women would come and say, hey, will you help me? Will you mentor me in business? Which, for those of you who are in business, what a privilege. Because you know um, the business is hard. That it will actually destroy your marriage. It will destroy your relationship with your kids if you're not careful. And so to come alongside business owners and other people and just say, hey, can I, can I help you? Can I mentor you? What a, what a privilege to be able to speak the love of God into those moments. And so this one guy who um, had just started a, a fledgling construction company started coming to me and saying, will you help me with this? And he was one of those guys, and, and some of you are like this, that he had the Midas touch. Like whatever he did, he made money at it. We all hate you, okay, just to be clear. Like we just don't even understand. And if you have the Midas touch, you look at other people and you're like, I don't understand why it's so hard for you to make money. You know, it's, it's weird. But this guy was one of those guys that he was just, everything he did, he made money. He just made good decisions, and God just blessed it. He just made lots of money. And at one point, he came to me, and he's like, hey, I'm feeling like my money has the propensity to distract, to derail, to destroy my relationship with God. What should I do? And my only response, let's go to First Timothy. God says, give it away. Give it away. How much should I give away? I don't know. Let's go to God. Let's talk about how much you should give away. Now, there's this interesting concept in the Bible called tithing. And the, the tithe, the word tithe actually means 10%. But there's an interesting argument over tithing. You know, it's the, it's the idea that you would give 10% of your investments, uh, your paycheck, everything that you make, you would give 10% away. It's like giving the first fruits, saying, God, thank you for providing for us. And, and the idea behind the tithe is that it would remind you that your heart is not invested in your money or trusting in your money, but your hope is in what God has done for you. Now, um, there's some arguing about how much the tithe is, because in, in the Old Testament, you can make a case for like 23 to 27%. Some people will look at the New Testament, they'll look at Jesus, and they'll say, he never ever mentioned the tithe, so I'm off the hook for the tithe. And then you keep reading and you read in the book of Acts and the believers had everything in common and they were giving everything to each other. So apparently we went from 23 to 27 to 0 to 100. Now I got to tell you, I'm not smart enough to figure all that stuff out. But here's what I do know. For the average person sitting in this room, giving 10% of your money away will make you live differently. And that's what it's about. It's about living differently. It's about living with a generous heart. Why? Because when, when we give away 10%, it reminds us that our hope is not in our bank account, but it's in God. Because if you have to give 10% away and your car breaks down and you're looking at, could I give this away or could I fix my car? All of a sudden you are faced with the very dilemma that God's talking about in this chapter, which is, do I trust him or do I don't trust him or do I... Did you get it? Or when you get laid off and you're like, I, I'm not going to keep giving because I'm not getting a paycheck, even though you might have money coming in through investments and whatever else. What, what if I can't afford my house payment? And yet what you're doing is you're doing God dirty 
because you're not giving him the opportunity to provide. And you're telling your own heart, let's trust in our bank account, let's trust in our investments instead of trusting in who God is. And you're not just doing God dirty, but you're doing everybody else dirty because you're not letting God tell a story in your life of some way in which he wants to provide something much bigger. Ah, he's telling us, give away 10% so you can remind your own heart that you're, you're not going to be duped by the love of money or by your riches, but you're going to be, you're going you're gonna to know that God has it, that he has it, and that he loves you like crazy. Now, I think for some of us, um, 10% isn't going to cut it because some of you could give 10% away and it wouldn't make a dent in your budget. And I, I love, and this is why I don't think that we should necessarily say this is how much. I think you should seek the Holy Spirit and say, how much is it for me? I had this friend growing up. His name was Bud LaCour. Bud was a business owner, godly guy. And he came to me one day and he's like, Jim, I'm working on reverse tithing. He says, I hope by the end of my life that I'm giving away 90% living on the 10. What is he doing? He's telling me, I want to remind my own heart that my satisfaction is not in my money, but it's in God. I'm reminding my own heart and I'm telling stories about God's provision all around. And I love it. I love what, what he was about. Seeing God's kindness, he tells us that the love of money is a snare, it's a trap. And he warns us not to be duped. And then he tells us that trying to get rich or trying to rest on our wealth is a, is a trap that we need to avoid. See, as Paul concludes this passage, and if you look with me in verse 19, he says that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you not know that that was God calling us to this morning? That when he speaks about money, when he calls us to be generous, he's not a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want you to live a life of poverty or joyless frugality or even to be minimalist. What he's doing is calling you to a much greater joy that we may take hold of that which is truly life. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and I would add money, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Oh, God loves you. He's for you. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul tells us this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, here's Jesus. He's like, I'm willing to risk it all. I'm willing to pour it all out because he could see what God had for him on the other side. And he's so full of the love of God, the fullness of God, 
that he's brave enough even to go to the cross and say, I'm willing to give it all to the ultimate generosity so that we could be rich. And in that, he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Oh, man. What's God calling you to do today? To per- pursue him? Is that, is that what you got out of this? I hope so. I hope that this wasn't a condemning message for you. I hope that you know that the only way you'll ever be freed from the love of money, the trap, is to pursue his righteousness, his godliness, his faithfulness to you, his steadfastness to you, his love for you, his gentleness towards you. Maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about being generous and the fact that you haven't been trusting him. And you're like, yes, I need to remind my heart. I need to give a tithe. I need to start tithing. Or maybe you're like, man, the tithe means nothing anymore. I've got to up the ante to remind my heart that it's upon God. And for some of you, you're like, thanks a lot, Jim. This is the most inconvenient season for you to bring this challenge. You know, you're like, I just wanted to give my kids a good Christmas this year or, you know, do something nice for my family at Christmas, and you're talking about giving. And, and here would be my challenge to you is, what could God do to make this an amazing Christmas if you lived in obedience? Would you put him to the test? Would you challenge him? Would you try and outgive God this season and see how he will bless you? Would you take that challenge? Because he's the God who says this, I'm telling them how they can truly live. He came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Amen. Let's pray. God, we just say thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for calling us out. We thank you for telling us not to put our hope in the wrong things, for our our joy, for your glory, for the satisfaction of those around us. We pray, Father, that our hearts would respond to you and the gentle way in which you've spoken to us. Let us live in repentance for greater joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's give him praise this morning.